Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. I'm definitely going to get hooked on something. Yep. So now you can imagine doing this. <laughs> like, absolute quantities of equipment. And this is why we do it now. Because here we have some old, but quite visible bander rail prints. Oh, yeah. Those two straight lines in an otherwise curvy environment. Nau mai hairu mai ki to tātou au hurihuri. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Claire Kincannon tēnei. Today, we wade into some of the research into Aotearoa's mangroves. One of, the, one of the beauties of working in mangroves is you quickly realise the value of terra firma and also <laughs> you quickly learn never to drop anything. And introducing me to the marvellous mucky world of mangroves is Jacques Tessache from Massey University. Now for his PhD research, Jacques is studying how a bird called a banded rail makes use of mangroves. Before lockdown, he brought me out to some of his mangrove study sites in Mangafai so I could learn more. Yeah, this is oi-oi grass that we're walking along and it kind of grades down into uh, Junkus krausi, which is a seagrass. They're both rushes in theory and both of them thrive in environments which get inundated every now and again by the tide. Um, so particularly at the higher spring tides, all of this will have water in it. And again, that's why you see to our left, we've got this seagrass uh, bed which sways in the wind beautifully and sort of reflects the light and then beyond it we have the mangroves where you get more frequent tidal inundation so at every high tide the water will come through the mangroves and that's why they're incredibly adapted to salt water and that's why you only see mangrove beyond a certain point and that's related to where the tide comes in and so this vegetation sequence that we see in front of us is a reflection of where the tide marks are. Oh, I see. So this is only big tides. Yeah. And then where we can see the mangroves in the distance is every tide. Yeah, pretty much. This is one of the super neat things about mangroves. They're a tree living in a place where no other tree could live. They get dunked by the seawater twice a day and they live in this squishy mud that doesn't have oxygen in it for roots to absorb which is how trees on land would normally do some of their breathing or respiration. Um, these little things that you hear cracking beneath our feet, those are pneumatophores, which are the aerial roots of mangroves. So this is how these mangroves are managing to sustain themselves and respire in these habitats without much oxygen, particularly when they're underwater. And this sort of root network 
is one of the main adaptations and one of the main features of mangroves more broadly around the world. Sort of a class of mangroves that use these pneumatophores or aerial roots to, to enable them to respire and extrude salt. That's another thing that they have a function for. Well, globally, there are many different species of tropical mangroves. In Aotearoa, there's just one species of temperate mangrove. New Zealand only has one species of mangrove. There are something like 78 different species of true mangroves around the world. And in some areas like northern Australia and southeast Asia, you can have 20 to 30 in, in one, along one coastline. But New Zealand is the southern tip of mangroves distribution. And as a result, we have a much lower diversity, much smaller mangroves. Some mangrove forests are genuinely giant trees, um, whereas we have, they can, they can be quite large. They can get up to sort of three, four, five meters in Northland. So with the temperature gradient in New Zealand, the warmer you get. They like the, warmer. They okay. like warmer, yeah. The larger they tend to be. So when it gets a bit colder, they don't grow as big. Yeah, when it gets colder, they don't grow as big. And when it gets too cold, they don't grow at all. What's the limit of mangroves in New Zealand? They're sort of restricted to the upper half of the North Island, so from sort of Ohiwa to Kafia, along the coastlines and within estuaries. And they've been here a while. Mangroves have been in New Zealand in some form for millions of years, somewhere Mm. around 15 to 19 millions of years. And this particular species has shown up in pollen records from about 14,000 years ago. So they are certainly indigenous species native to New Zealand. That's the mangroves. What about the banded rail? If you imagine a small weka, like a small brown bird with, but they have this intricate camouflage pattern where they have sort of dappled white in their wing and in their chest, and then they've got this really sort of beautiful orange stripe which goes across their chest, and these sort of almost looks like eye shadow, sort of this white stripe across their eye. Um, they're incredibly beautiful. Um, have these incredibly complex patterns um, but they're, they're this combination of brown, orange and white um, patterned in a way that they fit perfectly into these habitats which is why in all of the time that I've done this work three field seasons, multiple hours spent in mangroves and salt marsh in these habitats I've only seen them with my own eyes when I'm not catching them maybe three times So this cryptic bird is really difficult to spot. And mangroves are a tricky, mucky habitat to work in. Jacques really had his work cut out for him. He wanted to determine the extent to which banded rails use the mangroves because the banded rail-mangrove relationship is both complicated and understudied. We know that they occur in places where there aren't any mangroves, just that 80 to 90% of their population are estimated, at least on mainland New Zealand, to occur adjacent to mangroves. So we know that mangroves play a strong role in dictating their habitat use. It hasn't always been like that. In the 1800s and 1900s, there are records of banded rail throughout the North and South Island, both inland and along coastlines. The inland sites were primarily wetlands because they were rail, so they're these cryptic, secretive species. But what happened as we had early settlers, as a lot of those wetlands were drained and there were also a lot of introduced predators. And so the theory is, but it's just a theory because we have no, no one's sort of tracked the migration of banded rails and their habitat use over time. The theory is they disappeared from those inland sites and sort of these mangrove sites and salt marsh complexes represent the last sort of strongholds of the banded rail. These sort of fringe habitats that they might not always have favoured as their habitat of choice. Um, but are now restricted to today. 
So to answer his research question, Jacques has been surveying different mangrove sites, looking for banded rail footprints and also tracking the movement of some banded rail that he trapped and GPS tagged. So he's learned a lot about tracking footprints and about the movement and foraging habits of the birds. So here we have a better patch of mud and immediately we see the three toes, although we can only kind of see two, of a band rail. So there you have the middle toe print and that's the right toe print and the left one is kind of obscured. But you can see there's a small trail of one, two, three, four, five prints. And if we follow it, we might be able to, but oh, it yeah. might there's disappear into the wet. There's another one. Yeah. And it's followed the edge of this mangrove. Because like most wildlife, if there's a path that exists, they'll try and follow it. And when I'm doing footprint surveys uh, to establish where the birds are and what habitats they're using, I also measure the orientation of the bird. So the direction that that middle toe is pointing is the direction the bird is walking. And if you can line that up with the rest of the prints in the trail, we can tell from this trail that we're looking at that this bird is walking away from land, away from salt marsh, and into the bush. And because these are fresh tracks, and the tide tends to clean away most of the prints every tidal cycle, we know that this is from this morning, and it's walked out into the mangroves to go and foraging. And that now I can tell you with some certainty is in alignment with the GPS data that I've got where the birds will primarily spend the night in the salt marsh and then as soon as the light comes out they'll disappear off into the mangroves to go forage for the day coming back briefly into the salt marsh with the tide and then as tide, high tide recedes again they'll follow it back out and spend the remainder of the day in the mangroves. He's also learned a lot about mud. But the first thing that I'll do uh, when I get into a into one of these patches uh, like we're going to look at now is I'll place down this strangely shaped object. So we've got a plastic container covered with tape and it's got some stones in it and some wire coming out in the shape of a bird foot. <laughs> Do explain. <laughs> I needed a way of measuring whether sediment would be able to retain the footprint of a banded rail because I can't ask a banded rail to walk through a habitat and then follow it and look at where they'd left prints behind. I needed a way of creating a sort of fake banded rail, if you will. And that involved making <laughs> this awkward, strange contraption, which is a plastic container full of stones, which happens to weigh exactly the same as the average weight of a banded rail, about 170 grams. So that means once we place it on the ground, like so, and lift it up again, we get a beautiful print, in this case, because the substrate is really good. <laughs> that's how you categorize your mud now. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much, this is good mud or bad mud. <laughs> <laughs> Based on its ability to retain footprints. Exactly, there's a really nice trail going across here. In fact, there's a couple of really nice trails going across. Can you see this one? Yeah. One, two, three. We tell a lot of conservation stories in our changing world and about efforts to reduce biodiversity loss and protect native species, including native plants. So probably about now is where you might expect me to start talking about the threat classification of the native mangroves and how they're doing poorly and what we could do to protect them. But that's not the case. The mangroves are actually doing great. Maybe a bit too great?
So the rates of mangrove growth on average, I think the best numbers we have are probably within the Auckland region, which is about three and a half percent per year, but it is very specific to particular areas. That's Carolyn Lundquist, an associate professor at the University of Auckland with a joint position at NIWA. They might already be full of mangroves and so show no further growth, whereas other places that we see a lot of sediment deposition, we might see very high rates of mangrove spread. So I think the typical variation is anywhere from zero to about a 20% per year type of spread. And we've seen a number of small areas, for example, a couple of places we worked at in Mongeray Harbor showed kind of an entire small embayment fill with mangroves within just a few years. Carolyn is a marine scientist focusing on coastal wetland habitats, including seagrass meadows and mangrove forests. And she has done a lot of research into mangroves, and specifically into the short and long-term effects of different methods of mangrove removal. Because, since the 90s, there have been different resource consents issued that allowed different community groups or councils to remove mangroves. The spread of mangroves has been ongoing in the last number of decades and really with kind of huge peaks within the 70s, where we started seeing rates of spread of kind of three or four percent per year. And we can track a lot of that back through to the 40s from some work that colleagues at the University of Auckland have done. One of our former students, Suyati, used a whole bunch of remote sensing images going back to the 1940s and tried to tie in, you know, what type of climate drivers did we have as well as changes in land use. So did we have deforestation and urban development change from native forests into landscapes to support agriculture and those changes on land result in increasing sediments coming into our coasts and estuaries and those are definitely one of the bigger causal factors in increasing mangrove distributions. You know, a lot of estuary care groups formed, and lots of these were formed around, hey, we can all see something's changing in our estuary, and how do we both track what's going so we can actually have evidence that we can provide to council to say, this isn't imaginary, these are actual real changes, we're seeing increases in mangroves, but then that follow-on of what could they do, could they remove the mangroves, and so through much of the 90s, there were quite a few consents that were granted to try and manage at that local scale. We probably had about 10 years of these small consents. And then with the first one being about 2010, then we had kind of a much larger kind of harbor scale consent. So for example, Tauranga and Whangamata and Tairu, where these were kind of council submissions on behalf of or informed by community groups and others that then resulted in much larger scale, but more kind of coordinated uh, mangrove removals in a much larger area. So the rapid mangrove expansion is linked to catchment-wide processes across time. Changes to the landscape means more sediment washing into rivers and down into estuaries. So our influence on the fields and forests on the hills overlooking rivers has fast-forwarded this normal process of estuary infilling and provided perfect conditions for mangroves. So you get this change from open sand-flat habitats to dense mangrove forest. Here's Jacques again. These are one of the ecological difficulties of expanding mangroves is that they have a tendency to replace habitats like seagrass, habitats like sand flat. But while they get a lot of flack for being the the problem, they're actually riding the wave of sediment. 
And so sediment will often drown out these sand flat habitats first, cover eelgrass habitats, and cause major problems. And that's this process scale problem that we have to deal with when we talk about mangrove management, because mangroves sort of follow. But they're also capable of trapping sediment themselves. They can kind of have this reinforcing loop where they'll follow sediment, but then also maintain sediment because they'll hold onto it and build up mudflats further. It's time for the great habitat off. In the left corner, eelgrass and sandflats. And in the right corner, mangrove forest. First, ecosystem services. The animals that we have living in mangroves in New Zealand typically are the same ones that we have in the neighboring sandflat, just, you know, slightly different variations. So, for example, we might see a lot more crabs or we do have a, a tiny little freshwater snail that we'll see on the edge of mangroves or we have another larger snail that's an air-breathing snail called amphibola. So a lot of the, these animals are still found in the neighboring sand flats and mud flats but they might be more common in mangrove environments but we don't have any animals that are dependent on mangroves or only found in mangrove environments. There are apparently a couple, um, I believe it's lichens that someone's discovered in, that are particularly common in mangrove ecosystems in New Zealand. And then there's been quite a bit of increasing research. I think you've talked to Jacques already, but looking at the role of mangroves for birds, because this is one of the things that often comes up in consents. And there are a number of birds that have been uh, linked with requiring mangroves as habitats. So kind of a draw, except for the birds. For the birds, it's different. Some wading birds you'll only find on the sand flats. And Jacques's work has shown that the banded rail are big fans of the mangroves. And he says there may be other native birds that use mangroves. It just hasn't been that well studied. What about carbon capture? Looking at the sediment capture and that storage of carbon, both within the trees themselves, but also in what's below ground, all the roots and other bits that you find underground. And most people would be surprised to know that it's at least 50%, often up to about 10 times more biomass on mangroves is underground than you find above the sediment surface. So mangroves are quite, if you want to call it, bottom heavy. And with that much biomass being underground, that also actually helps a lot in then that carbon storage, because in those underground areas, that's when we'll have very anoxic sediments. So you have low oxygen levels in the sediment, which basically means things kind of stay there. They don't get, get decomposed and they don't get released back into the water column and the oxygen. They're basically stored. So that's the thing we want with carbon is we like that storage role of mangroves. And so some of the things we've done is everything from looking at the exact carbon and also um, other nutrient content, both in the above ground material, but also below ground material and the sediments surrounding our mangroves so that we can actually give quantitative estimates of how much carbon is stored by mangroves. That's a point to the mangroves. Carlin and her collaborators have shown that mangroves store two to three times more carbon than neighbouring mudflats. And they also have a role to play in preventing coastal erosion. They dissipate wave energy before it reaches the shore. But that goes both ways. If they are forming a barrier that blocks waves from eating the shoreline... They are, well, in the way. For large removals, the dominant rationale was this desire for amenity and recreation and that communities were finding mangroves to be an eyesore uh, where they might have had coastal views. 
and to be in the way of recreational activities that they might have been able to undertake in the past. And that includes things like just going for a walk on the beach or swimming at a beach your, your father or your grandfather might have been able to swim at or taking your dog for a walk. So it's tricky. Both habitats have value for humans and for nature. When we met up, Jacques had just finished a three-month secondment at the office of the Prime Minister's Chief Science Advisor, where he was focused on two things. The first thing I wanted to do was look at contemporary mangrove management in New Zealand, understand its spatial extent, the ways in which we remove it, and the societal drivers and rationales for its removal. And then the second goal was to understand what role avifauna, so birds, play within the mangrove removal process. How much are they accounted for and are there any measurable effects that we can see of mangrove removal on birds which use mangroves. We've removed, at least on legal record that I've managed to get hold of, around 330 hectares of mangroves in New Zealand. So that's since 1994 but the vast majority of that removal has taken place as of about 2005 onwards. So from around 2005 to 2016, we saw these big peaks in mangrove removal. But in terms of 330 hectares being a lot of removal, it is and it isn't. The first thing is it's quite likely to, under, that, that number is quite likely to underestimate the total amount of removal, because what it's done is document legal removal, whereas some experts within the field think that legal removal only makes up about half of all removal in New Zealand. The reason it isn't that much removal in some aspects is because you've got to set it against the context of mangrove growth. And it really is a fraction of mangroves gained versus mangroves lost. So I guess the big question is, how do we decide what to prioritise? Sandflat ecosystems and recreational access, or mangrove ecosystems with their carbon capture and protection from erosion? I think what's ultimately going to be important and the mangrove removal question is not so much the how much, but the where and the how. Both Carolyn and Jacques point to the practical difficulties of mangrove removal and management as a key factor in making these decisions. As Jacques said, mangroves follow the sediment, but then they also trap it there. And they are tenacious. So unless there is a high rate of erosion to undermine the new seedlings to help wash out the mud and allow the sand flats to return, then you might be fighting a constant ongoing battle with mangroves. And the way you remove them is important too. Since a lot of these big consents came through, I think there's a lot more understanding of if we do these large mangrove removals in places without thinking too much about them, that we can actually cause quite a big mess. And so, you know, there were some pretty long term repercussions, for example, of some of the larger mechanical mulching. So the tractors going out, removing mangroves, spitting all the mulch out the back. And a lot of those had very long lasting impacts. So you wouldn't go out and think that's a great looking habitat even now. And many of those were almost 10 years ago. And we've got other places where, you know, you do have mangrove removals that might have happened through either helicopter removal or removing by barges. On the other hand, we do still have very long delays before any of the mud goes away. Or remember, we talked about that kind of bottom heavy mangroves. If we're just 
chopping off the trees at the top, you still have that huge amount of vegetative material that's under the surface that takes a long time to actually go anywhere. So we're getting a lot better understanding of how long it takes to see a change. And gradually, I think a lot of the communities are becoming more accustomed to mangroves. And I don't want to say learning to live with them, but learning to recognize that, yes, you know, mangroves are expanding and we should be looking at, you know, how do we manage mangrove expansion, both through changing land use, but also through less destructive mangrove removal techniques like seedling removal. So there have been a lot of places where seedling removal is allowed to kind of hold the line, but on the other hand, recognizing a lot of our removal of adult mangroves. There there are enough methodologies that have now been trialed that are less destructive and less long-lasting in terms of impacts and are more likely to return to this sandier, sandflat habitat that a lot of the communities are desiring to get back to what they had 50 years ago. Um, But recognizing that that's difficult. And are there other ways that we can go about it and other values that we can, you know, build within this new world that has a lot higher amount of mangroves than we had before? Following his work at the Office of the Prime Minister's Chief Science Advisor, reviewing all the removal consents and the monitoring of birds that was or wasn't done for these consents, Jacques has some ideas of what could be done next. There is scope for improvement in how we manage our mangroves and what I would argue, two main ways. The first is that monitoring should be part of an adaptive management process. It should underpin how we manage mangroves. There's an opportunity to look at mangrove removals as carefully thought through experiments where we continuously monitor various aspects like birds, like macrofauna, like benthic changes to sediment and make subsequent decisions about how we manage an area according to that monitoring. And then the second thing is to link mangrove expansion to sedimentation and catchment-wide processes. So we need policy that reflects the scale of the underlying drivers of removal, not just local scale change. So we need to scale policy to process rather than just making our policy relevant to site-specific areas. Carolyn is happy that As we learn more about mangroves, we can better understand their value so we can shift away from wholly negative perceptions and make well-informed decisions about doing the best for our estuaries. It's that perception of mangroves of being these horrible, stinky, muddy, squelchy environments, and they're really not. You know, they're just different and potentially not what a lot of us are used to or would choose to walk through. On the other hand, if you were in Florida, the first thing you'd do is you'd sign up for a little cruise that would take you on a boat or a kayaking trip through the mangroves. And it would be perfectly cool and exciting and yay, mangroves are awesome and look at the monkeys and look at the big crabs on the bottom. And so it really depends on your perception of mangroves and that helps then determine whether you think they're a good or a bad thing but you know again as we increase our knowledge of what mangroves do provide we're getting a lot more balanced perspectives on whether we want to keep or maintain our mangrove forests and how they fit within that more balanced estuary ecosystem. Thanks to Jacques de Sache. PhD student in the Human Wildlife Conflict Research Group and to Associate Professor Carolyn Lundquist of Auckland University and NIWA. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon. Sound engineering was by Phil Bench. 
Thanks to Liz Garten for her editing help with this episode. Tim Walken is the executive producer. I say this every week, but if you haven't already, you should follow Our Changing World for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Visit our website at rnz.co.nz ourchangingworld to see photos and links related to the story and to explore our extensive back catalogue of episodes. You can also sign up to our monthly newsletter there. And we are on Facebook and Twitter at RNZ Science. RNZ has a wide range of excellent podcasts. Click on the Podcasts and Series tab to have a look through. I can recommend Healthier Hoax with Stacey Morrison. She looks at the latest food and fitness trends to see whether they work or not. Thanks so much for listening. Noho ora mai. Stay safe and well. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.